welcome to Leader's Call to Adventure. I'm Lori Ferentz. I had this nudge recently to record a conversation that I was going to have with Jennifer Ferroni, a friend from the trail and ultra running community. After seeing something she'd posted on Facebook about becoming a death doula or end-of-life doula, and somewhere in the day or two before we were supposed to talk, it kind of hit me. I have a feeling that this conversation is going to be one that's not only of interest to me, but to others. And am I ever glad that I followed that nudge because the conversation was absolutely fantastic, fabulous, and deeply profound. I believe it's a subject that although many of us are uncomfortable speaking about or even thinking about something that we all must face, which is end of life, Uh, not only the end of our own lives, but uh, the end of the lives of those that we love. So, hey, this is not all doom and gloom. I think you're going to find some very uplifting moments in this. Just to give you a little bit of background on Jennifer, she's an accomplished lady and has worn many hats over the years. Occupational therapist, healthcare project manager, run coach, author, Reiki practitioner, trail runner, mother, wife, and more recently, an end-of-life doula. Although these rules may be distinct from one another, they share a common thread, helping others. She has an interesting story. And I hope you enjoy it. Well, thanks for being hip to uh, to recording it. I don't know. It just kind of struck me out of the blue that this might be something interesting to record. So yeah, uh, yeah. And I haven't felt inspired to to do any episodes in a while. So. When inspiration strikes, you got to go with it. <laughs> totally. I don't know if you remember how we met. Do you remember? We met at Starbucks. That's right. The washing line. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. I don't remember how we started talking, but yeah. I just remember that's where we were. <laughs> yeah, I know. And I, I don't know if I, I don't think I recognized you because I don't even think I knew who you were or what you looked like at that point. So I remember I we somehow got to talking about... Um, my trail running retreat or something, the women's only or something, because really? you had said, Oh, are you Jennifer Ferroni or something like that? Uh huh. <laughs> I don't know why I would have known who you were, though. You didn't yeah, have probably a t shirt that says, Ask me. <laughs> or you had just seen an ad or something for yeah. it or yeah. something like that. And be. then you were about to do, you weren't very far off from doing one of your ultras. Yeah. Was that two years ago then that we met? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah. I think I was probably training for my 100 miler at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you were going off to meet some friend somewhere. And I think you were going to run somewhere in Hamilton or something yeah. like that. Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I try to leave the city when I can. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I saw you last at, I don't know if you if you remember, but I saw you last at Seton. Oh, okay. Yeah. See, I've been out of the racing scene for almost a year since my concussion. Oh, goodness. And I've done one race out in BC in July just to kind of test things out, Mm -hmm. which was a very interesting experience um, (laughs) because I picked a very technical one, which wasn't very good because one of the lasting side effects with a concussion is just difficulty with like having to focus and concentrate for a really long time. Yeah. Um, so I actually found my head was, was physically hurting during that race because even though I said, like, I'm going to take it easy, um, it just required so much focus mm-hmm. that it was just so exhausting for me. Yeah. Um, and just dealing with, like, weird type of anxiety, which, again, I didn't have before the concussion. Mm-hmm. But it it limits my training right now. So... I'm hoping at the end of the year that I'll be able to jump in a few smaller things just to have fun and then kind of make 2020 more of a, okay, I'm kind of back to normal. Yeah. Do some more things. 
When did this concussion happen? Was that, where was that? Last September at Golden, the three-day stage race. Right. On day two. Mm -hmm. And I had no idea that I'd hit my head that bad. Mm. There were so many lessons learned from that. Um, Not even so much lessons learned, more just awareness that I still think the trail running community, we have more to do when it comes to awareness around head injuries. Mm. That was a real eye opener because it happened at about 15 kilometers into the race. Yeah. And it was a 60 kilometer day. And it was right at the start of the climbing. And I honestly thought I was fine as long as I just slowed the pace down. Like at that point, I'm like, okay, you're no longer racing, but I think I'm good enough to, to finish or at least try it. And I stopped at every aid station, spoke to every volunteer, told them I hit a tree. Do I seem okay? And I kept getting the green light to go ahead. And I'm not putting any blame on them. It, but I think it just goes to show the awareness. Yeah. Um, I thought that concussions that you hit your head, you get a concussion, you see these symptoms right away. I didn't know that it can take many, many days for the symptoms to appear. Mm. Um, yeah. So it's been, it's been quite a journey with it, both positive and you know, the type of journey where I'm like, I don't wish it on anybody. Yeah. <laughs> it definitely has its frustrating moments. Um, but it's taught me a lot of great things as well. When did you f- figure out that you actually had one? Was it after the race? Yeah. day. So I finished the race and looking back now, I had a massive panic attack during the race at the top of the mountain when you had to run the ridge. Mm-hmm. Like, I'm talking major freak out, panic attack, full on tears and everything. And I remember thinking, whoa, what the heck's wrong with me? Why am I freaking out this much? Now looking back, it's like, okay, that was a concussion speaking because with the concussion, all of your thresholds are completely, I guess, lowered that any little bit of fear of heights became a huge fear of heights. So that should have been my indication that, okay, there was something really wrong, but Later that night, I actually felt fine. And I even had a glass of wine. I'm like, hey, I finished day two. I had a glass of wine. And then the next day when I was getting ready for day three, I just remember feeling nauseous. But like that nauseous feeling you get sometimes when you're nervous for a race. Mm -hmm. And I remember thinking, I'm not nervous because I'm not racing anymore. Like I quickly adjusted my goals. And then driving to the race site, again, I was like, oh, I'm feeling car sick. Hmm, Okay. So then I said, you know what, I'm just going to start at the back with my friends and just see what happens. And within like one to two minutes of running really easy, I knew that something was wrong because my head hurt so much. Every step was excruciating. I felt like I was going to throw up. So Mm -hmm. I knew within one to two minutes, I'm like, forget it. So then I walked off the course cried, you know, the little pity cry. Well, it was cry because it it really did hurt, but also because I'm like, this sucks, right? (laughs) And then I went to the race director and she's like, let's bring it to the paramedic. And then when I explained to him the symptoms, he's like, I'm pretty sure you have a concussion. And because I was flying home the next day, he's like, if your symptoms get worse, you need to go to eMERGE. Otherwise, follow up with the doctor when you get home. And then that night I woke up with really, really, really bad headaches. So I went to emerge to make sure I was okay to fly home. But, you know, they don't do like, they don't necessarily do the MRIs or anything to mm-hmm. diagnose you, right? It's, it's their best estimate in many cases. And then even the whole process of, well, we think you have a mild concussion versus a severe concussion. Even that is... Yes, there's some rough guidelines, but there's controversy on that as well. Mm. And because they had told me that I had a mild concussion, yet eight months later, I was still so impacted by it. Wow. But not just screwed up with my head. You know, when somebody tells you you have a mild case, so then you yeah. think, I'm oh, a couple of days, I'm fine. Yeah. And it's like eight months later, I'm like, really? I still can't do this and this and this? Like, good Lord. And then there was a really good article in the Globe and Mail about six months ago and one of the top I think neurosurgeons in the in the field said that that is they should just get rid of that of labeling it Mm. mild or not because he's like at the end of the day it's a brain injury 
and there's still so much they're learning about who gets impacted worse than others. Right. Wow. Um, yeah. So does all this have, is this related to becoming a death doula? Is all this related no, somehow? No, no not directly. Okay. I mean, not directly other than I would say it's helped me to just expand my lens on how I view things. Mm. But no, I got into this um, in a different way and it started, and I guess that's a good segue. Like it started with, it's coming up to two years or just past two years when my auntie died and she was like my granny. Mm -hmm. And um, she had been diagnosed, she was 80 and was diagnosed with um, cervical cancer in March. And then she passed away that summer. And she had so much anger in her, in, in her final months. Mm. And, but she's always been, as long as I've known her, she's always had a bit of anger and bitterness in her. Yeah. Um, just regrets with stuff. But the days leading up to her death, I just saw how anxious she was and how much anger she was still holding. And the last time I saw her, she, she allowed me to do Reiki on her. And prior to that, I'd never done Reiki on my aunt. Like I'm a Reiki practitioner, mm -hmm. uh, fairly new at it though. And, um, and then when she was lying in her hospital bed and it was like, this is when I was saying my goodbyes because this was Northern Ontario. Um, she, she agreed to let me do Reiki on her. And after the session, I really felt a shift in her. And that she was more calm and more relaxed. And I'm not to say that I can't say for sure whether that was Reiki or not, right? But I just I, I, I just was blown away with the contrast with how one minute she is so so much anxiety, so much anger, so much fear, and then she seemed more calm and at peace with herself. And then the next day I went running in Hamilton up the stairs. Mm -hmm. And running on the Bruce Trail in between the stairs. And I sat down to do distant Reiki on her. And it was beautiful. I, it was so vivid. I saw, I'm a very visual person, and I saw all these beautiful colors while I was doing distant Reiki on my aunt. And then all of a sudden, the colors simply disappeared. And I remember thinking, oh, shit, I know what this means. Mm. And 10 minutes later, my dad called to say that she had passed away. Wow. And, and I told my dad, not about the, the, that beautiful vision of colors, but just, I just said, you know what, dad, I, I really feel that she was more at peace with herself when she died. And he said, you know what, me too. And I just kind of kept that to myself, like my own experience, because yeah. I know a lot of people would think, whoa, little freak show there. Yeah, woo woo. But, but for me, it was more just around the fear around death and that I'm, I come from a very close family, but we didn't really talk really openly about it. Like we could show our emotions, but we never really would never sit down and really talk about it. And it just, after I saw my aunt's reaction after the, the Reiki, and again, not to say that it was purely just the Reiki, but it just made me realize that more can be done with people when they are dying. Yeah. And, and if there is a way that I can be involved with that, then it would be such a privilege. Mm -hmm. And that's what really got me interested in it. Plus, oh, the other things too was shortly after my aunt died, when I realized, like, I think I want to work in this area and I took baby steps. So um, the number two thing was working with a palliative care client and I'll, I'll get onto her in a second. Okay. But um, while doing the training to become a, palliative care volunteer, I learned about, you know, what are some of the imminent signs of death or when death is around the corner. And I remember thinking, why doesn't the medical community educate us on this? Because some of the things like, you know what, they're probably going to go a little bit delirious for these reasons and go along with it, keep them calm, like go along with it. Or they're going to say that they're really cold and your tendency is, well, let me cover you up with a really warm blanket. Yet, 
they're feeling cold because their internal organs are getting really hot. So all of the blood is going to the organs as opposed to the, to the extremities. So you may not want to be putting a blanket on them. So like just all of these things, I just thought, you know what, it might offer a little bit of calmness and peace to the loved ones if they know what to look for when somebody is dying and that they're not in pain. Just because they're breathing might sound horrible. It doesn't mean that they're in pain, right? So just things like that. So that really just, like I said, I wanted to somehow get involved and just help both person dying, but as well as loved ones caring for them. Mm-hmm. So then I wanted to take baby steps um, because I'm a very emotional person and I needed to just make sure that could I handle this. So I started volunteering once a week with a palliative care client um, who has ALS to offer her Reiki. Okay. Um, but obviously when I meet with her, it's more than just Reiki that I offer her. We, mm-hmm. we have a lot of really good discussions. Um, and I'll, I'll come back to her in, in a second. And then last summer or spring, summer, unexpectedly, my brother-in-law um, had, um, he, he passed away suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, but he was in ICU for about a, about a week. Um, and that experience with death was very different because he was younger. He wasn't the greatest health, but he was still relatively young, like, you know, early 50s. Yeah. Um, and it was very tragic where he just was complaining of really bad back pain, went into the, went into emerge again, Northern Ontario, and they released him with painkillers. They didn't do any blood work. And when he got into the parking lot at the hospital to go home, he collapsed because um, he had a ruptured um, vein or artery in his esophagus, I think it was. So he basically, like, he pretty much bled to death in the parking lot. Um, They didn't realize at the time that that's why he was in pain, was that he was already bleeding internally. Mm -hmm. But they were able to revive him. And then he was kept on life support for about a week. Was he conscious during that time? No. Mm -hmm. No. He only regained consciousness once for about 10 seconds. And... There I got to see just how horrible it was for my sister, Mm -hmm. not having had those discussions around what's your wishes around life support if something tragic happens. Um, He's from um, his ex-wife. Like his kids are still in the picture and they were living with Corey and Brant. Mm -hmm. But his ex-wife wanted to keep him on life support and the kids wanted to keep him on life support. But Corey really felt that that is not what he wanted. Mm-hmm. And he kept, but so many times the doctor said, we don't know why he's hanging on. Like there's every reason why he should be dead right now, but he keeps hanging on and it keeps giving us reason to try different things. And so that was really difficult for my sister and just seeing her grief during that time and not knowing really how to proceed Nothing was done in paperwork or anything like that. So I just saw just how devastating that was for her. Yeah. Um, On so many levels. And I was also doing Reiki on Brant in the hospital. And I could tell that he was caught between wanting to fight and wanting to let go. Mm. I, I could feel that, that shift. And this was all new for me too. Like, and I was starting to be like, whoa, I think I'm going crazy here. Like, how do I sense this? I don't know. But, um, and then for months afterwards, just seeing the grief that my sister went through after losing Brant suddenly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then seeing my parents' grief because my sister became, she was a real wreck. She had to come and live with my parents again. Um, And so my parents were trying to deal with losing Brant as well, but also being so worried sick about my sister and then feeling like they can't grieve in front of her. Like it just, it was such a web of grief. So again, that just made me realize that, you know, there's so many areas that people need help with after losing somebody. Right. 
and 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 also just the leading up and the planning and, and everything right so it was just a different way to look at at death and i also noticed at the time that i was my sister's go-to person the most like i was the one that she really came to and my parents would come to me as well to be like help us mm-hmm. so i also felt like okay there's something about my personality that um must be comforting for people and then last january of this year um i was just driving one day in the city in a different part of the city and um traffic became really really bad so i knew that there was an accident or something and as i finally got through to the intersection i could see everybody standing off to one side Mm -hmm. and then i saw a person lying on the road and without without even thinking i just pulled the van over grabbed the two blankets from my van and i just ran over to him and as soon as i got there i knew that he was very close to dying mm-hmm. um and uh, i just covered him with the blankets to just i guess my thought was just keep him warm yeah um comfort him comfort him and without even thinking I just I put one hand on his chest and one above his head and just started to offer him Reiki because I just what else could I do Mm -hmm. um and I just told him I said you are not alone and I just sat with him until paramedics came and oddly enough now I realize that I've been at the scene of an accident about eight times. Whoa. Every time to provide comfort, never to provide CPR like first aid. It's always been comfort. And over the past few years, each accident has gotten worse and worse. And I only made the connection after this one. That's something. I mean, how many people would even be at the scene of an accident if you're not a first responder or something like that and in the position to Mm -hmm. offer that? That's... And like I said, for me, it was just, it was instinct to just sit there with him. And, um, and what was really bizarre for me, bizarre, but in a, such a beautiful way was while I was sitting with him, I could see this beautiful yellow light around him, like his aura. Mm. And I could sense that he was truly a beautiful person. And I could feel him at peace even though he was still alive I could feel that he was at peace and then the paramedics came and then um, later on about an hour later as I was driving home and I put on the news or I can't remember if I listened to the news or if I found it online um, I heard that he did pass away at the hospital okay and um, I I was very shaken up by this um, both because that was the most extreme that I'd seen and that it really felt like he was dying in front of me, yeah. but also because of the things that I sensed. Mm. And, and again, it was just like, am I going crazy? And then a few days later, I was having a call with a woman who, um, she does like energy work. Mm-hmm. And during that phone call, I was telling her about about it and she's like Jennifer your guides are saying that you need to contact his family yeah and they never released his name so he was anonymous they never released his name oh getting chills yeah Yeah. it's beautiful though and and I told her I said Shauna that's really weird because Shauna is the name of the girl on the phone I said because before calling you I felt compelled to write a letter to his family knowing nothing about this guy I just felt the urge to write a letter to his family and I felt like I was writing to his mother because I started off by saying, hello, my name is Jennifer and I'm a mother of two. Mm. And then I got stuck. I didn't know what to write. So when Shauna said, Jennifer, your guys are saying you need to write to his family. I I shared with her what I'd already started doing. Mm. So she helped me to write this letter. And then, and I just figured, I would drop it off at the police station, hoping that they could somehow track down the family and give it to the family. And then that night, I didn't feel ready yet. I didn't feel that the letter was complete. So then 
I then woke up the next morning and had a very clear dream where mm -hmm. he came to me in the dream and he said, you need to add to the letter that I did not suffer. Oh. Because in the letter I wrote, he was not alone. Mm -hmm. But in this dream, he says, you have to answer. You have to add that I did not suffer. And I was just like, whoa, this is loud and clear. Yeah, like, yeah, that um, night especially. <laughs> so yeah. I added that to the letter and then I brought it to the police station. And long story short, they delivered it to his family, to his sister. She got in touch with me. We had a beautiful phone call. She said that their family just needed to know that he wasn't alone and that he did, that he did not suffer. Wow. Those were the two things that they just wow. needed to know and that I brought them that. Wow. Um, I then went to meet his family um, about a month and a half later. Mm -hmm. Huge family. I walked into his parents' home and there must have been like 25 family members. And I spent several hours with them. And it is amazing the connection that we feel to each other. Mm -hmm. um, and I've since met with his family several times. Um, and it just, I mean, that taught me so much. Again, it, it, so much of it has been with working with his family. Even the other day, about a month ago, I met with his other sister and his other sister, and I got them to start what they call Asim Day. Asim was his name. Mm -hmm. And um, part of the work that an end-of-life doula does is helping create legacies so that as, when the person has died, their memory still lives on mm -hmm. or their values is still being passed on. And um, so I've been working with the family to help create legacy projects with Asim. And one of that is, um, they call it Asim Day, where they get the entire family together and they do a special outing around the city in honor of him because he loved Toronto. He was like the city's biggest fan and would always organize these neat outings for the family. Mm. Um, so in his honor, they're going to continue doing that, um, as well. But it just, again, it made me just really further appreciate just the grief that loved ones go through afterwards. But this just happened in January? This happened in January. Wow. Mm -hmm. You've gotten to the point where you're meeting with his family and creating, mm -hmm. that's, it's incredible how fast this is all kind of unfolded and and, and then, how did you even find out I mean I've never I don't think until I saw your post I mean you hear about people nurses that are in palliative care that sort of thing but I'd never heard of a death doula or end-of-life doula yeah. how did that even come across your radar that it was something you could study I can't remember when I first heard about it I remember it was around the time of my aunt's passing mm -hmm. and I think it was just through social media and yeah, it was when my aunt had died and I think I was talking about it with the woman who I would see for Reiki and I'd mentioned it to her about how I felt inspired mm -hmm. to, to work in this field somehow. Yeah. And she was the one that got me hooked up with being a volunteer. Cause again, I want to take baby steps and I remember looking at the program and being too chicken to take it. Too chicken in the sense of, oh, starting a new career. Uh -huh. You know, am I getting too old? How do I go about it? It just seems daunting. What if I'm not cut out for it? Um, and, and, and just a lot of hesitation like that. And so I thank Asim for one of the things that he's given me is that confirmation that, no, I'm to be working in this area. Yeah. I told his family that he, he really secured that for me. Mm -hmm. That was one of the gifts that he has given me. Yeah. Um, and um, yeah, so I signed up for the program. And, um, and it's one of those things, right? Like once you hear about something, then you start noticing things, right? Like cause I remember around the time when I first started thinking about it, seeing something on the news mm -hmm. about, right? So it's just once you start putting it out there in the universe, things start yeah 
And then, um, so yeah, so I have one more weekend left of the course. Um, but I've just been loving it. Where are you taking this course? It's with um, the ITM, the Institute of Traditional Medicine in mm -hmm. Toronto. Mm -hmm. And it's such a funny name because it's like traditional medicine, maybe from the Eastern world. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Not yeah. No. Um, and it's really amazing program. And the, the people, the guest speakers that they bring in each weekend has just been amazing like these really are pioneers in the field experts in the field it's been it's been really amazing and because I work once a week with my palliative care client Brigitte I've been able to you know bring to her what I've been learning in the program and again with Brigitte it it just shows to me how on paper how in theory there could be okay, here's how you approach these discussions with your loved ones. Here's what you need to think about, you know, A, B, and C, and D. But it doesn't work like that. Like in Brigitte's case, she's early 60s, lives with one of her three daughters, but the daughter she lives with wants nothing to do with talking to her mom about this. She is in big denial mode. Okay. So I see firsthand how difficult it is for Brigitte where – she wants to move in a certain direction, but she needs to know that her daughters are okay with this. Mm. But because her daughters aren't being, they're not allowing her to have a conversation with them. It's just, it's tearing her up. Yeah. So, you know, I know what I can do to help facilitate, but at the end of the day, like the family still needs to, right? So it's just, it's been um, really valuable for me to witness that mm -hmm. and, and to really appreciate the struggles that people are still facing with it and how the dynamics can be so, so complex mm. and, and how bringing in a third person can be beneficial. Somebody who is, you know, can be objective, not subjective or can just be a facilitator because that really is what it is, 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 is really about being a facilitator mm -hmm. throughout all of this and just helping them navigate and let their voices be heard. Yeah. Um, and it's just, yeah, but I just, to me, it is such an honor and a privilege to spend time with somebody in their final days or weeks or months because I really feel that like that's when you really see the person for who they are mm -hmm. right like when they know that they are approaching death like their true essence just and what really matters comes out and for somebody to invite me to be part of that in their most intimate days. Um, yeah, like I said, it's just such an honor mm -hmm. and such a privilege because we always think that it's happiness that brings people together, but so much of it is about grief that brings people together. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be in a dark, twisted way. It could really be in a beautiful way. Like, like I said, just look at a scene. Didn't know the guy. Yeah, I could tell so much from him. Mm. And I feel so close to him and he's taught me so much all in that it was probably under two minutes yeah. that I spent with him on the road, you know? Um, yeah. Yeah. And when I took this program, it was also because I also knew that I still had some fears and anxieties around death. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to help me, on my own personal level, understand my views around death, but also on a personal level because parents are aging. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's some, right. So it's both on a personal level. Um, but also, like I said, I, I want to do something more formal with this. Mm -hmm. um, and I really think too, that there's a lot to be done with just the way our society, like, 
the way we welcome or not welcome death. And even like the other day, this weekend, I was watching with my kids. Have you seen the movie um, A Dog's Purpose? No. Oh my God, it's such a cute movie. Okay. It's about this dog. Um, it's not animated. It's it's like, you know, like a Walt Disney film. But it's yeah, not I've seen it on Netflix and I put it in my list, I think, for my son it's, and I it's, to watch. It's cute. Yeah. And it just came out with the following one, A Dog's Journey. But basically, mm-hmm. it's about this dog that dies but then comes back as another dog mm-hmm. and how he's watching over yeah the same person yeah. and when I was watching it with my kids I'm like I just happened to casually say do you notice how the, the dog he knows he's gonna die and yet he's not happy or he's not sad he's not happy he just knows that he's gonna die but he knows he's gonna come back in another life I kind of just said it's like matter of fact, (laughs) you know, because it it really starts at a very young age with how do we, what are our views on death? And even when I first started taking this program, the first night I came home from it, my kids were like, mommy, what did you learn today in this program? That's so interesting. And I started to talk to them about how one of the things we spent a lot of time on was how would I like to die? Like if I knew that I was dying of a terminal illness, how would I want to die? And not so much the logistics of like pills versus what, but more just, do I want to be in the home or do I want to be at the hospital? What smells do I want to sense? Do I want to smell? Um, Do I want to be facing the the outdoors? Do I want to be outdoors? Like more like that level. Mm -hmm. So I started sharing it with my kids and they seemed really interested but then it was my husband that was like, this is not dinner conversation. Mm. You're going to upset the kids. We shouldn't talk about it. And he didn't mean it in a, in a mean way, but it just showed his comfort level with it. Yeah. Whereas my kids were totally cool about it. But then seeing their father's reaction, you could see how then it starts to influence them. Right. Right. So I just think that, yeah, there's, there's work on a society level. Absolutely. No, we're not, we're not good with that in our culture at all. No. And also in how to talk to people that have lost somebody. That's just a big question mark as well, right? Exactly. And they're grieving. What do you say? What do you do? You know, how do you support somebody in their grief? It's all, yeah. Yeah. Big, big question mark Mm -hmm. for most of us. Oh my God, for sure. And, and like we spend so much time talking about that in the program and, and just with like, even jo- those statements of, I'm sorry for your loss, mm-hmm. where it's like, we can't even call it out. Yeah. I'm sorry that your husband died and is no longer with you. Right. Right. We're even afraid to say that. I'm sorry for your loss. Or instead just saying, you know, like, why don't you tell me something? Like if you didn't really know them, just be like, can you tell me more about your mother? Or, you know, like just what was one of the best attributes of your mom? Mm. Right. Like just that it's okay to still talk about the person. Yeah. Right. But we're afraid that we're just going to make them so upset. We make them feel worse. Yeah. Yeah. Where usually they want to talk. Right. And, um, and then how do you open the door so that you're doing it in a way that's respectful? Because I know there's also that sort of thing where people offer advice in those moments when mm-hmm. they, when, when those that are grieving don't want any kind of advice, yeah. <laughs> that kind of advice. That is so true. It's, it's yeah. just about being present. Yeah. And even last weekend when we had our course, we had this amazing clinical psychologist who works in oncology in the States. Mm-hmm. And he was getting us to practice that while we're listening to the other person share their grief. Like, so if I was listening to you share with me your grief, mm-hmm. I would just be focusing on my belly breath, mm. like belly breathing so that it helps to just be present and avoid that tendency to want to fix things or yeah. give it legs where so much of it is just, being present and just giving them that space to talk, to grieve, to share whatever it is that they want to, they want to share. How do we do that in the online space? Because with social media and Facebook and people are much more public about these things, they've lost somebody. Can you 
I don't know, suggest some ways that you can comfort people from afar if you're yeah. not in their presence? You know, and, and, and you're right with social media. I think it's trying to still establish some of that personal connection. So for instance, I just reached out to you on Messenger, right? Mm -hmm. I didn't respond to you back on the main post. Right. Right. And, and that's what I did was for, and then I had this other person who I don't really know, but he wrote this one really nice comment where he actually said, I've been thinking about this all week. So I'm thinking, huh, I probably know this guy. And he puts on, he's been thinking about it all week. So I just sent him a private message. And from there, we started a dialogue, yeah. right? So I think social media can be a great way to start, mm -hmm. but then try to follow up a little bit more personal. Yeah. I think, I think is the key. And same thing. There was another guy that I'd known from the world of sports. And I saw him post a picture about him losing his mother recently. He yeah. posted a picture of them in her hospital room. Mm -hmm. And I just sent him a personal message and just saying, you know, I didn't just say, Dave, I'm sorry to hear that your mom died. But I, I spoke to him personally. I said, from the photo, it seemed like you guys had this really special bond. And if you don't mind me saying, your mom actually looked like she was a bit more at peace. I hope that was the case. And then again, we started this beautiful dialogue. Mm. Right. Like, so just, yeah, not being afraid to make that personal connection. Mm -hmm. I think that's also because in our awkwardness of not knowing what to say or what to offer, then it's, well, we say these things, which are the blanket, I'm sorry for your loss and don't know how to go beyond that. Exactly. But I find if you can show that, what I would call vulnerability, mm -hmm. then it opens it up for the other person as well. Yeah. Right. Like, cause I told my friend Dave, I said, I hope you don't mind me saying this, but like, you know, it looked like your mom seemed to be at peace. And, and I'd mentioned that I was doing this course, you know, et cetera. Um, and, uh, you know, so I was able to get a little bit more personal with them. So he was able to respond back in a very personal way. Whereas if I had just done that directly on his Facebook post, mm -hmm. There would not have been that same level of discussion. The dialogue, yeah. Dialogue. Because, yeah. yeah, you can't always be there physically physically, in front of somebody. Mm -hmm. So it doesn't mean we can't still use social media, but it's about looking for ways that we can make it as personal as possible and also showing some vulnerability. Like, it's it's okay to say that things aren't okay or you know, that it's really hard. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I think, like you said, people just need to not be afraid of saying the wrong thing. Like obviously you use some sensitivity, but the simple fact of calling it out from what it is, is not, it's not like all of a sudden, like if you say, I'm so sorry your mother has died, that the person is going to be like, Oh my God, I completely forgot about that for a moment. Right. It's yeah, obvious. Right? Right? Yeah. Yeah. They haven't forgotten about it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Or even how about what do you say sort of in follow-up when you know somebody lost someone and you haven't seen them in a while, but it still has to be impacting them in a, you know, in a fairly significant way. Although the whole thing is, is like, let's, carry on and go on mm -hmm. like you know carry on with our lives and you know whatever comes next what can you do in follow-up when some time has passed yeah and that's a great question because i think a lot of it is when somebody is grieving those first few days or weeks that one they're still in shock two that's probably when they have the most support yeah afterwards is when it starts to really get hard when they start to realize really how their daily routine is impacted mm -hmm. when that person is no longer there um and then they probably start to have their own self-judgments well come on i should be moving on better than this right so they might be afraid to be the ones to say i'm really struggling but if you can kind of open up the door a little bit for it or let them know that you are genuinely, like sincerely interested, not just saying, how are you doing? But you can even add to it, like, I've been thinking about you a lot, you know, thinking there might be some high and some, like some good days and some bad days. Um, 
you know, and kind of just giving them that opportunity to say, yeah, you know what? Yes, there are some good days and some bad days. Or, you know, just like, I want to help. What would be the best way that I can help? And you can give some examples. Like, do you want to go out and meet for coffee? Do you want me to bring you by some meals? Um, but I think just letting them know that you really do care, that you're not asking just to be polite. Mm -hmm. And depending on the relationship that you had with the person, you know, to say, you know, the other day I was thinking like, so let's say it was a friend, like her husband, you know, the other day I just, for whatever reason, I just, I had this memory of him and it made me smile thinking of this. And I think, you know, somebody would like to know that. Yeah. Because a lot yeah. of the fear around death is around the fear of being forgotten. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, or like I know for my sister, sometimes I will just send her a message or call her and say, you know, I saw a hummingbird in my front yard today and I couldn't help but think of Brant. Mm -hmm. And I cried a little bit. And I just shared that with my sister. Not worrying about, am I going to make her cry? Because if I made her cry, then she was just due for a cry. <laughs> mm -hmm. But so that she feels that, yes, you know, we are still grieving for him. You don't just grieve the day that there's a funeral. Yeah. You know, that it's, it's part, of, part of the process. Yeah, and that and she's not alone in that grief. Yeah. Yeah. Or for like Christmas time. So he passed away in June. Mm -hmm. And at Christmas this past year, we were all getting together. So I knew that it was going to be a hard time. Like there'd be hard moments. So I decided, well, we are going to all get crazy, ugly Christmas shirts. I went mm -hmm. to Valley Village, got the tackiest, ugly Christmas sweaters, mm -hmm. you know, just to add some humor. Yeah. But when we all got together and we were in the ugly Christmas sweaters, um, I just stopped everybody and I said, you know what, guys, <laughs> let's just address this elephant in the room. We're all missing Brant right now. It's our first Christmas without him. We're all missing him. So let's not try to pretend that we're not. Yeah. Let's go. And then we kind of just went around the room, just sharing whatever memory we wanted to. Yeah. And I think that's, something that we can do depending on the relationship is just offering that space, that safe space to still talk about the person, to still allow for feelings to be felt when they need to, mm -hmm. both the goods and the bad, you know, but it's usually it's that we're afraid that we're going to say the wrong thing. That's so that true. That we're going to make them upset make it make them feel worse than they already do mm -hmm. yeah yeah but i also like to think of it as if let's say i did bring it up and i did make the person upset at least they're getting upset in the when they're with somebody else and there's that human kindness and compassion because if they got upset with that then you can be sure that they're probably getting upset on their own yeah they don't just forget that their loved one is gone no Right. So again, it's that human kindness and compassion that they need as opposed to feeling more isolated. Indeed. Yeah. So I'm still, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly where all of this is going to take me. I just know that I definitely want to work in this area. Mm -hmm. um, I want to do more education in it like I know U of T offers some additional courses where it could just be a little bit more focused in like on, what exactly um it's a certificate of I think grief and bereavement they've changed mm. it the past couple of years but essentially mm. it's there's like six different modules oh that if you take all six you can get a certificate or you can take them individually so some of them is on like more in depth in depth on grief and bereavement um one on just trauma mm -hmm. um, itself. Um, I forget what the other ones are right now. Um, but yeah, it's, I think it's, it's an, it's definitely a field that is just going to be 
I think explored more and more in the coming years. Yeah. Well, mm-hmm. definitely something that's needs to, I, we need to expand our awareness and our comfort level with, right? Because it's mm-hmm. something that uh, we all have to face. Yeah. Yeah. And this, this course has definitely helped me just, like I said, face my own fears and issues around death and feel just more at ease with it. Yeah. Not as scared with it. Um, and then because of that, then I'll be able to support others that much more. I'm curious. So just the question that came to me a little while ago was about the Reiki and how all that unfolded, because it does seem like that kind of led you to this along with yeah. other circumstances, but how did yes. that open up for you? You know what? And it, and it did um, because yeah, like to be, to be working as an end of life, you do not need to be doing Reiki or right. anything like that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely was, um, I guess, kind of like that door opener mm-hmm. for me because that's what made me realize just how, um, how Reiki, I mean, I knew that Reiki could help a person feel more relaxed in general, right? But um, with my aunt, it just really showed what it can do. And even like what I feel like when I was doing that distant Reiki with my aunt and then with Grant and then with a scene where I could feel their, essentially their souls mm-hmm. kind of departing. Mm-hmm. That's not Reiki per se. No. But it, mm-hmm. it also, it was like, cause I've always doubted myself in every walk of life. And that has been a theme that I've been trying to be working on over the past couple of years is just in general, with just having more confidence about myself. Mm-hmm. And, and Reiki was one of those areas. Um, so this has been a beautiful experience too with showing that, again, if you just trust and believe and quit judging yourself so much or doubting everything, just trust and surrender that things, things happen. And um, the Reiki can just be such another beautiful tool to use when people are dying, whether it's the person themselves with reducing pain, reducing anxiety, overall relaxation, but also with the caregivers because it's so hard on the caregivers, Mm. Um, both from a physical standpoint um, and just the exhaustion, but also emotionally that Reiki can be really helpful Mm. as well. But yeah, it definitely was kind of the, I'd say that the platform that did kind of bring me into this. Well, you could see your impact of sharing Mm. that and what the effect was, right? It's just mm-hmm. energy yeah. and then sensing energy. Yeah. Cause even with my palliative care clients, I can feel this very subtle shift with her, mm. with her energy as well. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then trusting that you're what you're feeling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's not always easy. Mm-hmm. That's for sure. Um, well, it's not so tactile, right? It's not. No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that's why I, I sometimes giggle to myself when I think about my Reiki practice, because, you know, one of the underlying lesson with, with Reiki has been to just trust and surrender when things aren't black and white, because with Reiki, it's not a direct cause and effect i can't say oh i put my hand here so this is what has happened mm-hmm. like i can talk with people about what i observed when i was offering them reiki and they can share with me what they observe but it doesn't tell us anything specifically right so that was really hard for me to let go of that of but no it needs to be black and white it needs right. to be this clear. very clear logical thing right and I noticed that's a theme in my life with everything. Like, well, 
in this relationship, it has to work this way because it just has to work this way. And if it doesn't, I assume it's not working where it's like, no, it's not always just, it's hard to explain, but it's Reiki has taught me some good life lessons. To just kind of give things space and give people space to be who they are. And to just trust. Yeah. Yeah. That it's not always this clear picture of what you see or what you think. Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And even a lot of it's trust and intuition, right? And even coming back to feeling comfortable when you're around somebody who has, who has lost somebody, we often know intuitively that we should go or we may want to go and approach this person. We know that intuitively, but we start to second guess ourselves. Yeah. What do I say? What if I make her upset? Right. Mm-hmm. But, but we know on some level that, okay, it'd be nice if there's a connection being made here. Yeah. Right. There's, there's a lot that we just intuitively know. We mm-hmm. just let our minds get in the way. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like I've got some homework to do now because I have a couple of people that have lost their mothers that I know of recently. And um, I feel like there's some follow-up that I need to do that will be. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know what? It's never too late. Yeah. You know, and sometimes just letting people know, like, not just asking you this to be polite. Mm -hmm. I'm asking you this because I really do care. Yeah. You know, like, because I think often they think that, oh, people are just pitying me. Right. Mm -hmm. And it's like, but just taking that extra little step to be like, no, I really do care. Or, you know what? Like, I miss this about your mom or it's okay to say those things. What if you didn't know their mother? So if you didn't know their mother, when you're saying like, I really want to know how you're doing, right. You can even, you can even just say, you know what? I didn't really know your mother. Yeah. I would love for you when you, if you want to Mm -hmm. tell me more about her. Yeah. Right. They they usually still love talking Mm. about them. Right. Or just like, like I said, it could be an open-ended question like that, or you can ask something a little bit more specific, like, you know, what is one of your favorite memories about your mom Mm -hmm. or something? Yeah. Or even what do you miss most? Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, it's, it's actually very simple, but we mm-hmm. think that we need to come up with something very complicated, right? yes. something, something more than that, or else it won't be enough, or we'll make mm-hmm. a mistake, right? But yeah, it's just very simple and human. It's, yeah. Yeah, no, it's so true. Thanks very much for listening to this conversation with Jennifer Ferrodi. For show notes, you can go to my website, www.leaderscalltoadventure.com forward slash 23. As always, love to receive your feedback and hear from you. You can reach out to me, laurie at leaderscalltoadventure.com. And if you enjoyed this episode, please do share it with your friends and be so kind as to leave a rating or review on iTunes as it helps to get the message out so that more people can find it. Until next time, and it should be a fairly short next time because I've just recorded another episode today. Looking forward to releasing that one as well. And I usually take some time to listen to it, edit it, and that sort of thing. But as a preview, it is a conversation with Anya D. You're talking about our common passion for genealogy and how incredibly rich that can be when you start getting into it. Everybody has family, everybody came from somewhere. And when it feels like time for you to look at all that, it can give you a lot of insight and understanding and bring much more than you might have expected or hoped for.